Welcome to The Right to Shower, critical conversations on homelessness and cleanliness. All right, let's hit it. Let's hit it. Let's hit it. Welcome back to The Right to Shower, conversations with social experts and leaders on why access to cleanliness is a human right. This podcast is brought to you by The Right to Shower. The Right to Shower helps build mobile showers for those experiencing homelessness. Stick around at the end of this week's podcast to learn how you, our listeners, can get involved. I'm your host, Darius Baxter, president and CEO of Good Projects. And y'all know every single day we are in the good fight, supporting families on their pathway out of poverty. But on today's episode, we are joined by the chief executive officer of the People Concern, a leading provider of an advocate for evidence-based solutions to the multifaceted challenges inherent in homelessness and domestic violence. He is here He is here today on the show to discuss how the people concern is helping those experiencing homelessness and providing housing to those who need it most. If you're listening to the show, you're likely aware of how deep seated and challenging of a social phenomenon homelessness is to address. You're probably also curious how you as an individual can have an impact. So today, this is a show to help address those questions and get a better understanding of what it's like. This is the Right to Shower brought to you by the Right to Shower brand. Welcome to the show, John Masseri. Good morning, Darius, or good afternoon, I guess, in your case. It's nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be with you as well. Where are you joining us from? You know, I'm here in the district. So, yeah, it is afternoon. Where are you from today? Los Angeles. So it's uh, about 1015 here in L.A. John, you've been with the People Concern for 21 years now. Longer 23, than, actually. 23 years. OK. 23 Jordan year. Years. Longer than some of our listeners have even been alive. Um, And you've been serving as the executive director of OPCC and chief executive officer of the people concerned following their merger. Let's take a step back, though. How initially were you inspired for your love for helping people? Oh, well, that really actually goes back to childhood. Honestly, I was fortunate to grow up in a family where my uh, maternal great grandmother, in addition to raising her own three children, raised 12 foster children Mm -hmm. and not because she got paid to do it, but she had an enormous capacity to love people. And she was really the role model and the inspiration. And she told me from the time I was a very young boy that um, no matter how much or how little I had in life, that I would always have the capacity to help other people. And that really inspired me. I think that combined with my catechism by Jesuits at an early age sort of taught me empathy and compassion. I often joke that the Jesuits ruined my life because mine mine too. I'm a Georgetown guy. Yeah. They taught me (laughs) empathy and compassion, but uh, that carried with me, you know, into my adult life. And that was really the springboard, you know, for my work in in what I'm doing now and in helping people experiencing homelessness. John, for our listeners that may not know necessarily about the people concerned, can you tell us a little bit, what does your day to day look like? Sure. So the People Concern, as you, you said, was formed in the merger six years ago between the Ocean Park Community Center, OPCC, based in the, on the west side of Los Angeles. So for your listeners that are familiar with L.A. County and the Santa Monica, which is the beach community, the west side of L.A. County and Lamp Community, which is based in Skid Row, mm-hmm. um, downtown Los Angeles. What a lot of people don't know is that the woman who founded Lamp Community, Molly Lowry, was actually one of my predecessors at at OPCC. I was the director at at then OPCC before the merger. And Molly had been the director from 1976 to 1984. And she left in 1985 and used to say she took both what she knew and what she learned at OPCC to start LAMP Community. And so Molly passed away not quite four years ago now. 
and um, was able to see the two organizations combined. And so today we are one of the largest housing and service agencies for people experiencing homelessness and victims of domestic violence in Los Angeles County. And we operate in all areas of the county. So um, as you may know, the L.A. County is almost 4,000 square miles, so it's a very large geography. Mm -hmm. So from North County up the Antelope Valley all the way down to Long Beach and parts in between. And we're supporting about um, 2,800 people in permanent supportive housing. Um, we have operated about 700 beds of temporary interim housing and then wraparound services. So primary medical care, mental health care, substance use, and then domestic violence services as well. Okay. I'm glad you talk about domestic violence services, right? Because I'm trying to, as I was doing my research on you, John, and the organization, I was trying to understand you guys sort of coin yourself, um, the people concerned, you guys coin yourself as um, providing evidence-based solutions to what you call multifaceted challenges inherent in homelessness. What does that mean? <laughs> well, yeah, I know it sounds a little jargony, but I, I think that, you know, there, there are a few things that are fundamental to our work. You know, first of all, that we realize that, you know, people experiencing homelessness, homelessness is, is many things. It's a manifestation of extreme poverty, but ultimately it's a manifestation of a lot of cumulative trauma in people's lives. And sometimes that Hold on, say, know, say, that, say, that, say that one more time, just in case they didn't hear you, John. Uh, uh, yeah, accumulation so, of what? <laughs> cumulative trauma in people's lives, which often starts, not always, but often starts in childhood for some of the people that we serve. And so it, it can be the result of intergenerational poverty, of intergenerational violence, you know, struggles with mental health challenges or lack of access to the social determinants of health that are really main drivers in keeping people poor and, and keeping them from accessing the resources that they need, including housing and the level of supports that people need to keep them housed. And so when we look at, you know, evidence-based practices, what does that mean practically? You know, it means addressing the root causes of trauma in people's lives and realizing that people are body, mind, and spirit, right? People don't just present as, as their disease or their circumstance, you know, people experiencing homelessness you know, are, are, that's not the totality of their experience. And so really looking at, you know, what are the needs of the individual? How can we support those individuals in their journey back to stable housing and provide them with the appropriate level of support, not just to get them housed, but to keep them housed. And so recognizing that, you know, a major driver into homelessness for women and women with children is domestic violence, for instance. So one of the things that makes the people concerned somewhat unique in our space is that there are a lot of homeless service providers. There are a lot of domestic violence service providers. There are very few organizations that put those two things together. So domestic violence services has been part of our agency's DNA for 45 years. Um, back in 1977, we started Sojourn, which is our DV program. And so we recognize, you know, encountering people and working with people in the early um, stages of our work with them that often DV can be a driver into homelessness, recognizing that people may be struggling with mental health issues that are undiagnosed or have been untreated for a long time, recognizing that people um, may have chronic health conditions that are contributing to you know, their homelessness or keeping them homeless. And most often what we find in cumulative trauma is that there are many of these issues that come into play. That's not to say that every homeless person is a victim of domestic violence or is mentally ill or substance addicted or has a chronic health condition. 
What we do know, though, is that people who have been on the streets a long time often experience many of these things. Certainly. And John, this is an important point that you bring up, right? Because a lot of times when we talk about domestic violence, there are sort of these outreach hotlines and supports for those individuals that feel sort of trapped and they're in these situations and they're too scared to leave. But we don't think so often about the individuals that have the courage to say, I'm not going to stay within the situation or I'm not going to keep my kids in this situation. So I may not even have a plan, but I have to leave. Right. So in your experience, have you seen a disproportionate impact on women because of this? Oh, absolutely. I, certainly victims of domestic violence aren't just women. We there mm-hmm. are there are men, there are you know, many same-sex relationships where there's domestic violence. But the fact is, is that, and we get asked this question a lot, you know, why, why don't the women just leave? Why don't they just go? And the fact is, that's the most dangerous time for a woman is when she leaves, because we know, and history bears out and data bears out, that when she leaves is the time that she's most at risk. This is often the time that literally she can be killed um, by the batter. And that's often one of the threats that the batterer will use is if you ever leave me, I will kill, kill you. you. If you ever leave and take the kids, I will kill you. If you do this, you know, there will be, you know, fill in the negative consequences. And often, you know, as the relationship um, goes on, the woman, the victim is isolated, does not have access to financial resources, sometimes doesn't work outside the house and has no financial resources, is often cut, cut off from family and friends. And so it's very easy to say, why don't you just leave? But it's really not that simple. I would say for the women who, who choose you know, to leave and who can leave, um, that's a very courageous act uh, on their part. Yeah. And let's give a hand clap to, to all those strong, powerful women out there. I was raised by a single mother. Under no circumstance were we in a situation where where she was experiencing domestic violence. But I just always tip my hat, John, to just how strong women are, particularly in the context of the American dynamic. Man, they, they do so much. But just slightly turning the page, you, you've been in a number of roles, John, a number of roles. Um, but one of the ones that I was actually most impressed with, you've served on the board of NoHo Home Alliance, right? Yes. Uh, Northern Hollywood Home Alliance. And, and this is a nonprofit that is ser- serving homeless individuals and immigrants in the area around the San Fernando Valley, right? How have you seen the Home Alliance make a positive impact on those experiencing homelessness? Yeah, so I'm really a proud board member of NoHo Home Alliance. I've been on the board for about four, almost five years now and started First of all, I think it's important to give back um, to the community. I'm fortunate here at the People Concerned to have hundreds of volunteers who give their time and resources to support our organization. And I feel compelled you know, to do the same in my own community. Uh, there are many things I love about NoHo. One, it reminds me a lot of, of, of a scrappy startup nonprofit. It started at uh, St. Matthew's Lutheran Church, um, which has a very dynamic pastor who comes out of a community organizing and social justice background who's very, very committed to people experiencing homelessness and immigrants, but, but people experiencing poverty and has really taken the assets of the church, started with a very small um, drop-in program, um, repurposing um, one of the offices with a shower and a bathroom in it so that people in the local neighborhood right there in North Hollywood, um, proximate to the church, so the church is not too far from a pretty large public park where a lot of people experiencing homelessness are hanging out during the day and, and really started there and then has really grown it. Um, it's still a small and scrappy organization, but has engaged the faith community. One of the things that NoHo believes 
strongly is in hyper-localized services and engaging the local community, both the faith community who often have buildings, have um, property that can be used in service, but also engaging local community volunteers. So the staff of NoHo is very small, but the volunteer pool is very large and, and really are the main drivers of delivering the services. That's amazing. That's amazing. When I did my research and sort of looked at your career path, you have done a lot. Obviously, you've done a lot of work in the area of those experiencing homelessness, but you've either done direct service with those that are immigrants or those that are immigrants and experiencing homelessness. Like, where does that personal conviction come from in the work that you do with uh, those that may have immigrated to the country? My my passion for for helping people, as I shared earlier in the program, really comes from my my upbringing, both my family and my religious, my you know my faith, you know convictions. I grew up in a family. I'm a second generation, you know, immigrant. My Italian grandparents came here, brought my father and his brother. Our story is very similar to a lot of immigrant families. My grandparents came here, didn't speak English, didn't have much money, and you know worked hard raise their sons to assimilate and, you know, be part of the American dream. And I think that, you know, that early experience um, was imprinted on me and that combined with my mother's side of the family, you know, who were not, were probably fifth generation immigrants, but had a real commitment to service. And um, as I said, my great grandmother raised 12 foster children. So I grew up very much um, in an ethos where, you know, I, I believe strongly that we have a responsibility to help one another. I, I believe that a community helping others is a community helping itself because mm-hmm. that makes, you know, the, the community better and stronger um, for all of us. And so that really has been just, you know, part of who I am. It's embedded in my DNA, really. Certainly. That's beautiful. That's beautiful, John. And thank you for sharing that amazing story. And we sort of see all of these figureheads, you as one of them, and we see all the work that they're doing and all the accolades and the awards that you get. But it's not often that from the outside looking in, we can understand who you are as a person. Right. But to take it more sort of to the, the technical side of things, have you seen in your work, whether with NoHo or with other organizations, that being an immigrant actually increases the risk of homelessness? Well, in some cases, it, it does. Um, it, it certainly in- increases the incidence of poverty and so the likelihood of people falling into homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm always hesitant in, in to talk about, you know, immigrants or any group in broad strokes because every person is an individual and every group, you know, has has challenges that are unique to them. That being said, you know, what we what we see very often is that you know, immigrants are often working in very low wage jobs. Um, if they are undocumented, there is always the constant fear of trying to access any community benefits or resources because mm. of the fear of deportation. Certainly, in the current political climate, which is highly charged and, frankly, not particularly welcoming, at, at you know at this point in time, and, and certainly over the last couple of years, we've we've seen that more immigrants are are not you know, sort of coming forward in the ways they did before for services. They often are rent burdened and are paying a higher percentage of their income for rent or to, you know, for whatever housing that they have. They're often living in multi-generational or multi-family households um, where 
the living conditions, you know, aren't ideal. And so certainly during COVID, we saw, you know, higher incidence of COVID infection and community spread among immigrant populations because they didn't have the same opportunities, in, you know, sheltering in place. And also many of them work in jobs that are considered frontline and essential workers. So there are no doubt challenges, you know, faced by um, immigrants and, and poor immigrants, particularly that make them more susceptible to falling into homelessness. No, I understand. I understand. And this is this is great for our listeners to to hear as well. I want to take it back to the work that you do at the People Concern. And when you talk about evidence based practices and solutions to a multifaceted approach to systematic homelessness, you're not just talking about that professionally. You're walking the talk. I'm trying to figure out when you find the time to do all of these things, because I also saw that you joined in 2021, the UCLA um, Zimmon Center for Real Estate and Affordable Housing. Um, so you're not only sort of hitting it from one end, doing the direct service work, for those experiencing homelessness. You're also on the other side of it, trying to figure out ways to provide higher quality, affordable housing to those. So serving as a member of the Strategic Advisory Board to expand the Zimmon Center, here you are working with affordable housing and permanent supportive housing and community outreach efforts. Like, what has that experience been like for you? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, specifically with Zimon Center, you know, it, it's relative, my participation there has been relatively new. I feel very fortunate to have been invited to join that group. You feel is, very uh, fortunate? They were lucky to have you. Come yeah, on Yeah, well, you're, you're kind, you're kind, Darius. No, I, I think they, that I'll sit on the board, I'll brag for you. Y'all lucky to yeah. have John. You're lucky to have him. <laughs> well, thanks. I appreciate that. But it's nice to be in the company and it's a very diverse group in terms of affordable housing developers, architects, urban planners, really a lot of disciplines that are really trying to tackle the, the big policy issues. Because I think you raise an important point, Darius, which is I see this work as there's the there's the on the ground day to day work of impacting people's lives. And, and that's really important. Street outreach, access centers, public toilets and showers, clothing, food. I mean, the things that help keep people alive. Shout out Lava May X. Absolutely. No, showers are absolutely paying attention to one's hygiene and being able to take care of that is extremely important. So those those are important. And it is also important for us to look at the policy implications and to change the systems that both create and perpetuate homelessness. And so you know, the work that the Simon Center is doing is one important piece of that to look at, you know, new ways to scale and produce housing, how we, you know, plan communities, um, what kinds of, you know, building materials um, can make an impact from a sustainability perspective and also to be able to produce housing, you know, faster and cheaper, looking at you know, zoning and land use, those are really important issues, especially in places like Los Angeles, where, you know, land is is open land is very scarce, certainly in the in the city core. Um, we you know, we are a county of about ten and a half million people. Um, prices of real estate are very expensive. Rents are high. So really, how do you create affordable housing in an urban area where the cost of living continues to grow up, you know, continues to increase and the gap between, you know, those that have access to affordable housing and those that don't are is continuing to grow. So 
I'm, I think it's important both for me personally, but also as, as a professional working in this area, not just to address people's basic human needs, which is critically important, but to also try and change the systems and affect the policy that are driving, you know, a, a lot of these things that push people into homelessness and keep them homeless. Mm, 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 mm. So why, obviously your time is very limited, yet here you are still doing work with the Diamond Center. Why is affordable and permanent housing so important to you? Well, because ultimately homes cure homelessness. I mean, that, that sounds very simplistic, but the fact oh my is, God. is can, that I, can I coin that? Homes yep, yep. cure Please. homelessness. <laughs> Let's yep. run a campaign. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really that simple. If we don't want people on the streets, and I say this all the time, you know, especially, you know, over the years, we've been involved in many, in developing many affordable housing projects and you know, you, you go to the community neighborhood meetings and you get the typical resistance and pushback of we don't want it here. We don't want, you know, I'm not against homeless people, but, you know, dot, 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 which ultimately just comes keep, down. Just keep them to, off my block. Right. Just not here. You know, go do it somewhere else. And so the reality, here's the deal, you know, is you have to decide, you know, at, whether you're an Angelino or wherever you live. But since I'm in Los Angeles and working in Los Angeles, I just say to my fellow Angelinos, you have to decide what you're going to be angry about mm -hmm. because there's only two choices. You're either going to be angry that people are on the streets, you know, living in tents or vehicles and doing all the things that you complain that you don't want them doing because they don't have any alternative or you're going to be unhappy because they're housed. Um, but you have to decide because there there is no in between. People are either going to continue to be on the streets and the quality of life is going to continue to be degraded for them, for the people who are living on the streets, as well as those of us who are housed, or we're going to build housing. They're going to live indoors, take care of their business and manage their lives. And life goes on. Once those buildings are built and people are moved indoors, the fact is all the horrible things that everyone predicts is going to happen doesn't happen. Property values don't go down. Crime doesn't go up. In fact, the, the the affordable housing buildings are often the m most attractive and most well-maintained buildings in communities. And that's a fact. There, there is uh, lots of data and research to back that up. So in, in some ways, you have to kind of you know pick your poison. You have to decide um, either you're going to be angry because the, the status quo is going to continue and, and it's going to get worse on the streets, or we're going to make... Um, a commitment as a community to really lean into this problem and to house people. And for me, you know, there, there is no choice. It's, it's pretty simple. Yeah. No, I understand. Do you see states in the future adapting to build more affordable and permanent housing? I hope so. I, I mean, you know, the challenge with affordable housing development, like any housing development, I mean, you know, Los Angeles is in California, which is a very expensive state to live in, you know, land costs are high everywhere, especially in our urban areas. Um, so property is not readily available and it's very expensive. But the reality is, is that I think as a society, we have to make a decision about what is important to us. You know, what are our values? And for me, again, it's an easy decision. I think we have the resources and the ability and the know-how um, you know, to solve this problem. And no, nobody that I know working in the field gets up scratching their head in the morning saying, gee, I don't know what to do. We know exactly what to do, exactly what to do. And by the way, affordable housing is not just targeting people experiencing homelessness. Affordable housing is for working people, you know, people who are, and increasingly it's becoming, you know, teachers and firefighters, 
and people in the service industry are, who are working hard and sometimes two or three jobs to keep a roof over their head. So this isn't just about, you know, housing our unhoused neighbors. It's really about, you know, creating opportunities for hardworking people at all income you know, levels to be able, you know, to to live um, and contribute to our community. So, you know, of course, we're going to keep pushing the collectively, we, the people concerned and our colleagues working in the affordable housing space to build more affordable housing. Because if we don't do that, we are not only going to continue to see the numbers on the street increase, but we're going to see more and more people, you know, working class people who are simply just not going to be able to afford um, rent. Certainly, certainly. And I'm assuming that you didn't get all this information from reading a book, John. Now, I know you're no. super well educated, but uh, is that the right assumption? It's the right assumption. It's it's the, the hard knocks of lived experience of, uh, you know, 23 years here at the agency, 12 years. I worked as the director of an AIDS service organization that did residential care and supportive housing for people living with HIV and AIDS. So, you know, we're pushing on 35 years now of, of frontline in the trenches work on housing in some form. AIDS work, of course, is is different in, in some ways from the work that I'm doing now, because at the time I was in the field, people were dying from AIDS, not living with HIV, which is different, you know, but the issues were still the same in terms of creating housing, safe, decent, affordable housing for people. Cool. Well, you're one of the few gangster rappers that still talks about being in the trenches, Brother John. Um, for those of our listeners that may be thinking about doing something similar, may already be doing something similar, and then we have a number of politicians and people, government officials that listen to the show as well. How important is community outreach? Well, it's really important in terms of. And, and, and um, I, I'm sorry, another part. Is there a right way to go about it for community outreach? And I'm, I assume you're talking about community outreach to people who are housed. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Those those that are experiencing homelessness. OK, so both. So community. So street outreach for people experiencing homelessness, mm -hmm. as well as community outreach for people who are housed. So community outreach to the unhoused is, is critically important because that's often the first way that we build relationships with people. Our ability you know, to do our work is really based on our ability to build trusting relationships with people. And so the street outreach teams are often the first point of contact that we will have or that people will have with us. And so that consistency of presence, um, the ability to, you know, get to know people, to work people, work with people, you know, to get them connected to housing and services is a critical first step. It's not the only way that people come into services. They often come in through our access center. We operate a, a public restroom, shower and laundry service, both in downtown and Skid Row, as well as on the west side. And that often is a point of entry. So creating opportunities for real connection, human connection with our staff and volunteers um, for the people um, that we're serving is critically important to the work. Certainly. I, I, I can only imagine how beneficial that is. I recently, not going to lie, I experienced this homelessness as a child, but I ain't homeless no more. I'm getting a little bougie over here, John. I got my clothes uh, washed for the first time and it's expensive. It's expensive. Yeah. So I can only imagine how great of a service that is that you all are providing. I'm, I'm sure that takes a lot of resources. <laughs> Yeah, it sure does. It absolutely does. And it's important, but it's important for people's, you know, human dignity too. to be able to things we take for granted, to be able to, 
go home, you know, take a shower, you know, have a place to store our belongings, mm -hmm. not have to worry about where our next meal is coming from, have a closet full of clothes, place to store our medications. We don't have to worry, you know, when you close and lock the door, you know, that you're going to be sleeping outdoors and somebody's going to take your stuff, including maybe your identification or your personal belongings. Maybe everything you own in the world is in that backpack or in that shopping cart or in that tent. So that is a, it's not a way that we want to see people, you know, in, in the richest country on earth, um, that we have the resources to be able to solve this problem. It gets back to, you know, do we have the collective moral outrage and do we have the political will to make it different? Mm, the collective moral outrage. Mm, 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 mm. You got these one liners, John. I'm loving them. Have you written a book yet? No, I haven't. I'm kind of saving all that till uh, my retirement time when I have more time, but uh, collecting lots of anecdotes for the for the book. Uh, retirement. Uh, We're going to be waiting a while then. Uh, Not for a while. <laughs> but you, God willing. Uh, you talk about uh, collecting these anecdotes. What have you learned over the course of your career working with the unhoused population that may surprise our listeners? Um, how resilient people are. I think, mm. you know, we the narrative, the common narrative is that you know, people on the streets are lazy, they're shiftless, you know, they, they, they want to live this way, they're, you know, whatever pejorative you want to assign to them. What I see is, you know, kind of going back to where we started our conversation, Darius, I see a lot of cumulative trauma. When you hear people's stories, you know, all the folks on the streets were born into a family. There were someone's son or daughter at one time, sometimes they often have siblings, they've had families, they've had a life. They had a life. They didn't, I have not met, and I've worked with thousands and thousands of homeless people over the years. I have never heard the story of someone said, you know, I had a great life. And then one day I woke up and I just decided I was going to throw it all away and go live on the streets. Mm -hmm. I have never, ever heard that story. I've heard I had a great life and then this happened and that happened, you know, I had my first psychotic break when I was in my 20s. I started using drugs and alcohol. My spouse died. I was in an abusive relationship. I mean, fill in the blank for all the things that have happened in people's lives, which is trauma, right? And that often triggers a downward spiral. And then over time, people become really convinced that there's no way out for them often, or they're lost in the fog of addiction or struggling with mental illness, or they are so disconnected from whatever support system existed for them that they just don't see any hope in their life. So they become hopeless. So what I have seen, you know, in all these years is a tremendous amount of human resilience um, in people to overcome tremendous obstacles and barriers in their lives, the things that most of us couldn't imagine. And yet people do recover and they live lives, you know, that are fulfilling. And, you know, it's not easy. I'm not saying that, it, you know, it, it, there's some magic formula or magic wand. There isn't. It's hard work. It's hard work for them and it's hard work for us. And it's building trust. And sometimes it's one step forward and three backwards. But I see that time and time again. And those thousands of people, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to, you know, feel like I've been part of those journeys. They did the hard work. You know, we provided the tools and resources and support that people needed, you know, to change their lives. Um, and I feel fortunate, you know, to 
have been part of that. But that's that's what I see is I see resilience um, and, a, and really a willingness to survive and, and not just survive, but thrive. Mm, thriving. We love thriving on the right to shower. So for our listeners, what advice would you give them if they want to help someone who is currently experiencing homelessness? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there are a few ways. I mean, in, in uh, you know, very direct ways. I th- one of the things we hear a lot from, you know, the people that we serve is that they often being on the streets is a very dehumanizing experience that they get used to people walking by them, ignoring them, scorning them in some cases, you know, so just recognizing the humanity of people, you know, acknowledging them, making eye contact, saying hello, good morning, how are you today? And I know sometimes people don't necessarily always feel comfortable engaging in conversation. And this obviously, you know, depends on the individual. If somebody's in a full psychotic break, they're probably not going to want to engage in a conversation. Probably not the best time. But I'm talking about, you know, generally when you see people just walking by them on the street or if they're sitting, you know, on a bench or in, in an area. So that's one thing, you know, very directly. The second thing is that, you know, as my very wise granny told me when I was a very little boy that no matter how much or how little you have, we can all do something. So, you know, if you're interested in in this issue, there are many organizations in the local communities, wherever you're listening, um, that you can get involved, volunteer, provide financial or in-kind support to those organizations. There are always organizations engage, whether it's in street outreach, running a drop-in center, food program, clothing drives, um, all kinds of things that you, you can do. If you're a business, you know, engage your employees in volunteer activities. We have many of our volunteers who come and prepare. We're fortunate that we have, you know, residential facilities where we have teams come in and prepare and serve meals where they can actually spend time with the residents and, and get to know people. I will tell you that that will often change your mind about, you know, who you think homeless people are, because as you get to know them as people and you hear their stories, you know, it has a really um, positive impact. And then finally, I would say, you know, don't be the NIMBY, be the YIMBY, the yes in my backyard. You know, when when the affordable housing or permanent supportive housing development is proposed for your neighborhood or your community, be the person who shows up and says yes you know, this is important. We want this in our community because we want people to live indoors and live with dignity because it improves the quality of life for them and for us um, as well, both housed and unhoused. So those are various ways that people can can get involved. Certainly. Well, John, you talk to our listeners about volunteering for organizations. I know one in particular that they can, the people concerned for those of our, our groups that may be West Coast based, where can our listeners find more information on the people concerned? Yeah, so it's really easy. You can go to our website, which is www.thepeopleconcerned.org. And there's lots of information there on volunteering, on donating, on getting involved. Um, there's a list of the various ballot and legislative initiatives that we're tracking. So there are lots of ways to help and, and get involved. And we welcome that. Are you all on TikTok? Um I don't think so. I'm certainly, I can tell you, I'm not Darius, but um, I don't think we're on TikTok. Instagram, yes. Facebook, yes. I don't think we've made it to TikTok yet. And I don't know if the, if the comms team is listening and probably shoot me if we are, but uh, um, I don't think so yet. As we close out this week's episode of The Right to Shower, which has been one of my absolute favorites, if you were to leave our listeners with, uh, we have a little uh, tradition here. Um, we ask our guests to leave our listeners with 
uh, a story that they may want to share, a message or even an affirmation. It's my favorite. Is there something you might want to leave our listeners with? Um, you know, I, I know it sounds like a cliche, Darius, but I would say if everybody does a little, nobody has to do a lot. And I think that, you know, the issue of homelessness feels overwhelming, especially, you know, for your listeners, I'm sure in Los Angeles or you know San Francisco or Seattle or any urban area where you see large scale street homelessness. And I think this has become a an issue that people think is not solvable. And I, I would, I would challenge that. And I would say to you, this is absolutely a solvable issue. Mm -hmm. We can solve this. We know what needs to be done. We need, as I said earlier, the collective moral outrage and not moral outrage at people experiencing homelessness, moral outrage at ourselves and our, and our government, um, that we allow this to continue when we know the solution and we need the, you know, collective political will to get it done. So everybody has a role to play. And on that note, for all those publishers out there, John is a free agent. He, uh, <laughs> he is open and available. I'm officially his management. So just hit my line. Um, but thanks again um, to John Masseri for being with us today and discussing some of the evidence based solutions to the multifaceted challenges inherent in homelessness and domestic violence. If we can develop a sense of community with those around us, extending a helping hand gets that much easier. If everybody does a little bit, nobody has to do a lot. If you're looking for some way to get started, you can visit the right to shower.com slash get involved to learn more about opportunities to volunteer or donate. You can also buy our shower products on the right to shower.com or through Amazon. For every soap you buy and shower you take, you help us bring mobile showers to the streets. Another free and simple way you can help is to rate this podcast, leave a review, or to share it with friends so that we can spread the power of the shower to even more people. I'm Darius Baxter, and this has been the Right to Shower podcast. I look forward to seeing you all next week. 